From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. Never before has the threat of a nuclear missile from North Korea been more pressing. Even in a conventional conflict, within the first few days, you would have 30,000 to 300,000 deaths. And then, obviously, those numbers go up exponentially when you have nuclear weapons involved. The Trump administration has taken a hawkish stance. And if war comes, make no mistake, the North Korean regime will be utterly destroyed. But what will it take to ease tensions between the two nuclear powers? The more you engage the North Koreans, the better if you want to change the regime. Disengagement is entirely the wrong approach. Join us for a lively town hall discussion from the United States Institute of Peace next on America Abroad. From Public Radio International, this is America Abroad, the show that brings global issues home. On today's program, we listen to Brinkmanship, U.S.-North Korea Relations, a town hall discussion recorded at the United States Institute of Peace in Washington. Our event was recorded on December 1st, three days after North Korea launched its latest missile test. Our host for the event was Todd Zwillick, host of PRI's The Takeaway. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for being here. I'm joined by four panelists who bring a, a wide range of perspectives on North Korea. Frank Ahm, who's the U.S. Institute of Peace's expert focusing on Korean Peninsula issues from 2001 until this year. Frank served as the senior advisor for North Korea in the office of the Secretary of Defense. Welcome. <laughs> Jean Lee is here. Jean was the first American granted access to North Korea and in 2012, she became the chief of the Associated Press's Pyongyang Bureau. Currently, she's a global fellow at the Wilson Center. <laughs> Anthony Ruggiero is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He's a former government expert on targeted financial measures, sanctions against hostile regimes. He was part of the six-party talks on denuclearization and a non-proliferation advisor for the United States. And he's here to guide us through some of the questions of sanctions as we move forward. So it's good to have you, Anthony. <laughs> Glenn Ford is furthest to my right. He was a member of the European Parliament for 25 years focusing on Asia-related issues. He's also co-authored a book, North Korea on the Brink, Struggle for Survival. Glenn, it's good to have you as well. Thank you. So before we start our discussion, let's start with the news. The latest ballistic missile launch from the North Koreans. Now, North Korea claims that this latest missile flew to an altitude 10 times the height of the International Space Station. But what you need to know is that it went so very high that it can go so very far. And apparently now that missile could land on Chicago. Let's hear from UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. We have never sought war with North Korea, and still today, we do not seek it. If war does come, it will be because of continued acts of aggression like we witnessed yesterday. And if war comes, make no mistake, the North Korean regime will be utterly destroyed. Nikki Haley, the United States ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, Frank, let me start with you. This latest test, the latest in a long series of ballistic missile tests that we've all watched, does it change the state of play in a fundamental way? The fact that this missile now, we're all aware, can not only reach the West Coast, but the continental United States, um, is this just a continuation of a new positioning from North Korea, or do you see something fundamentally different? Well, thank you, Todd. So you're right, the test that North Korea conducted 
is uh, the latest version of their ballistic missile. It was uh, the Hwasong-15. It was a very large missile, had advanced second stage capability, and uh, it can pretty much, defective range was 8,000 miles, so that can cover all the United States. Now, I wouldn't call it a fundamental shift in a technical capability sense. They've conducted similar tests before in July. If there's a fundamental shift, I would say it could potentially be more in their political posture because Kim Jong-un has said before that he wants to simultaneously develop the nuclear weapons program as well as the economy. And now with this test, he stated that North Korea has finalized the nuclear weapons force. So we may be looking for a shift in uh, North Korea's regime towards more economic development. We may even see a pivot to uh, an opening in engagement. Gene, you wanted to add something about missiles. So there are a couple different components before they actually have a weapon system that can truly threaten us. That said, I think every single test is very dangerous for other reasons. But I just, I think that we should keep in mind, too, that it might be some political posturing. Kim Jong-un did say on, the, on January 1st, on New Year's Day, he said, I'm going to complete this by the end of the year. So he had to show his people that he had this timeline and he was going to complete it. And also, I just want to point out, I had expected a test. I know everybody was saying, what is up with this 75-day lull? But I had been expecting one in December, because the times that I've been in North Korea in December, under Kim Jong-un, this has been a time for testing because December is the month that his father, Kim Jong-il, passed away. Mm. So it was, there are a couple different domestic reasons for why Kim Jong-un wanted to test this missile. What better way to honor your relatives, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> one of the features of this show is input from people around the world and from listeners and viewers. So I wanna play the video clip now. This is coming from Ji-hyun Huang, who's a, a student at Hankook Academy of Foreign Relations in South Korea. Let's play this clip. Uh, this is probably in Korean, so for the benefit of some of you, I'm going to translate after a minute here. It says, I want to learn more about the specific ideologies that President Trump might have. Since the nuclear issue is a problem for the entire world, we must understand each country's policy. And then she asks if she has a message for President Trump, and her response is, please study the history. Using Twitter does not mean you are communicating with the people. Glenn, I'm going to go to you. Do you have a sense of how the North interprets Twitter messages from the president, whether insulting or bombastic, do they ignore them? Is it just part of the background or is it important? No, no, they certainly talk about them. I, I was in Pyongyang last week talking to people in the uh, Korean Workers' Party and they talk about uh, Trump's Twitter feed. One's got to understand that for the North Koreans, like it or not, I mean, Kim Jong-un is uh, almost a god. Uh, and in, if you're insulting him, it makes it very difficult to get to come to the table. Imagine what would happen in Japan if you insulted the emperor. Or we know what happens in Thailand if you insult the king, you get 20 years in jail. Who's reading Twitter in North Korea? Is it just a small handful of elites? Oh, yeah, yeah. The people who matter at the top, they get a daily compilation of world news, which clearly, even if they're not seeing Twitter itself, it's being covered. And one of the problems they have with the United States, it's a very different system from their own, and they... They don't understand checks and balances, and they don't understand that people in the same administration are actually saying different things at the same time. Gene Lee, let me go to you and talk a little bit more deeply about American strategy. It's clear, or it seems clear, that the Trump administration has abandoned strategic patience, the doctrine 
of the Obama administration before it. But have you noticed a substantive difference, a substantive shift in strategy or even tactics, aside from the Twitter feed, from this administration than from the one or the two before it? Well, let's talk about that Twitter feed, because one of the differences we're seeing in terms of Obama-era policy and strategic patience versus the Trump Twitter feed is the rhetoric. And the rhetoric coming from the Twitter feed is not only confusing to the North Koreans, also confusing to the South Koreans because it doesn't jive with the policy that his Secretary of State is putting out there when it comes to um, dealing with North Korea. Part of the strategy of strategic patience was it's kind of like when you have a naughty child. There is a theory that perhaps you shouldn't give that child the attention that child is craving, right? Put it in the naughty corner. But part of that policy was to kind of ignore the provocations and not to kind of feed it. But what we're getting with these crazy tweets from the president's feed is a rise in this war of words between North Korea and um, the United States. And certainly what I think people in South Korea are worried about is if both of these uh, leaders raise the rhetoric to the point where they can't back down, is that going to lead the region into some sort of a conflict? So it's very confusing for people in South Korea, I have to say, not to mention um, those of us here in the US and the North Koreans. Uh, I have to remind you that we have a state of uh, an armistice and a ceasefire in place on the Korean Peninsula. So militarily, we're, we're limited to a certain degree if we abide by that armistice. Donald Trump, the president, can threaten all he wants in his rhetoric, but there is a limit to a certain degree if you're going to follow the, the code of conduct um, to what you can do in terms of military action. We're going to talk a little bit more about military options, such as they are, a little bit later in the program. Uh, Anthony Ruggiero, sticking on the Twitter theme for one moment, another feature of the president's Twitter feed when it comes to the North is uh, pushing the Chinese and sometimes encouraging them, sometimes praising them, sometimes insulting them as well, uh, trying to get them to ratchet up and crack down on their client state, North Korea. Is that effective, uh, not just on Twitter, but maybe using real diplomacy? How far has the Trump administration gotten with their calls to the Chinese government to, to get tough on North Korea from their end? Right, you know, when you ask the question about uh, comparing the Trump administration policy and the Obama administration policy of strategic patience, you know, the relationship with China, I think, is the, the, the biggest example of the difference. I mean, this is the first administration that has really gone after China with sanctions uh, for their facilitation of North Korea's sanctions evasion. You know, uh, there, are, there are many times they've gone after one Chinese bank, they've gone after many uh, numerous uh, Chinese nationals, for the Trump's trip to Beijing, he was very public in his praise for President Xi, and then only a few weeks later he comes back and there are you know, strong sanctions against Chinese entities. I would also come back, if I can come back for a second, back to the question of you know, does this missile test mean now we're moving forward on diplomacy or is this a sign? You know, I, have to, I have to caution, first of all, that we saw uh, larger missile systems in the April parade. So this is not the end of North Korea's missile program. There are probably larger missiles that they're working on now. And I remember the day before the test where people were saying that this 70-day pause in testing was an, uh, an opportunity for negotiations. And that's not true. What we now learned is that North Korea was using that 70-day window to build a lot bigger missile to reach the United States. So I think we have to be very careful about suggesting that the North Koreans are going to all of a sudden throw up their hands and say, OK, now let's have a negotiation. 
They're only going to want it on their terms, and it's not going to be on denuclearization terms. Glenn? What's changed is that, at least after this missile test, the North Koreans or Kim Jong-un has actually said they're at the end of their program. I mean, I have to say, Barack Obama uh, described his policy as uh, strategic patience. Um, I term it m malign neglect. The sanctions were on and they were squeezing North Korea. It wasn't a benign operation by any means. But I think the key thing to, to realize is that the administration completely misunderstands uh, China's influence. Because, quite frankly, on the economy, China has some, has some ability to hurt North Korea. But, of course, it doesn't want to collapse the state. The last thing it wants is U.S. troops on the southern bank of the Yellow River. The point being that China's got almost no political influence over North Korea. I want to play another clip now. This one is from Yitao Huang, who's an office worker in China, in Shanghai. And he has this message for President Trump. He says, learn from our President Xi, things like one belt, one road, the Silk Road, peaceful development, shared prosperity. Being the only powerful country isn't fun. Look at China and Russia. We're on great terms. Why do you have to do what you've been doing? Everyone should participate. You should not dominate the game all by yourself. I think that most Chinese people share this view. Anthony, President Trump may agree with Yitao Yang here. here. Here the U.S. has been trying to deal China further into this process, right, than probably many officials in China want. China is split on how far to go in pushing on the North Koreans. Isn't that right, when, when you look at the Chinese options for sanctions? Well, you know, the Chinese leadership faces a difficult decision. How long are they going to look the other way? And I think that it's clear that they have leverage with North Korea. I mean, the issue here is really going to come down to the United States is going to have to use its own sanctions against China to get them to act. In some of the cases where the U.S. has acted first, the Chinese have followed that with investigations and looking into the activities. And, and we're going to have to see more of that. I don't think the Chinese are ready to do that on its own, on their own nationals, but we have to get to that. I'm going to take this opportunity to own and trademark the phrase domino sanctions. That's what you're talking about is us leaning on China with sanctions so that China turns around and leans on, on the North. Right. I mean, the issue here is that the Chinese are willing to, as I like to say, nibble around the edges a little bit and target North Koreans that are engaged in these activities. But there are far more Chinese companies and nationals and banks that are engaged in this activity with North Korea. You know, Chinese are not gonna allow the UN to sanction Chinese persons. So it's really left to the United States. And you know, just a part of history, since I worked on Iran sanctions as well, this is exactly what we did on Iran sanctions. A majority of the sanctions that brought Iran to the negotiating table were not UN sanctions. They were US sanctions that were implemented by the United States and a group of like-minded countries. And that's probably what it's gonna come down to with uh, with North Korea, and the question is going to be, is China going to be the one that's sanctioned, or is the, are they going to be the one that help implement those sanctions? What's the purpose yeah. of sanctions? Well, the sanctions were supposed to stop North Korea becoming a nuclear weapons power capable of hitting the United States. Now, it's very clear that the sanctions you have now will not stop that happening. I mean, well, the CIA clear. assessment says they have the capability of hitting the United States with a nuclear weapon within three months. Now, you really think sanctions are going to work in the next uh, eight weeks? I would say the goal of sanctions is denuclearization of North Korea through negotiations. And I, I will also use the Iran example again. I remember very clearly that people said that Iran would never return to the negotiating table. 
the North Koreans have not yet felt what it is like to have the United States government use Iran-style sanctions on them. And you know who knows that? The Chinese know that. All right, so Anthony, you, you, you're making the argument, and I'm glad you did because I was going to ask you about this anyway, that, that there is a lot of room left to squeeze, that the sanctions are not nearly done if we want to ratchet them down more. We're coming up on a break soon, and this gives me an opportunity because sanctions are a two-way street. You can be the sanctioner, but the sanctionee um, is part of this equation as well. And I'd like to get maybe a minute from each of you, and we can go down the line, Glenn, and we can start with you. What you think North Korea wants from this entire confrontation? Do they want out from under sanctions? Do they want room to rebuild the economy? Do they just want to be tough? They so want start there. What do they want? Regime survival. And they see two elements to regime survival. Firstly, they need a, a nuclear deterrent, because they're not keep, capable of competing with the United States uh, on conventional weapons. They're outspent by a factor of 50 uh, with the United States, Japan, and, uh, and South Korea. And then they want to develop the economy. They have to develop the, con the economy so the people that matter, the two billion people in, in, in Pyongyang, uh, actually see rising standards of living, and preferably the rest of the country as well, but they're the key people. So that's what it's about, regime survival. You agree? I do, and I don't have anything to add on that point, but I do want to reiterate that the U.S. intelligence community assesses that there's no amount of pressure that would get Kim Jong-un to give up his nuclear weapons. Senator Corker admitted as much in a, new, a Meet the Press interview a couple months ago. The question is, and, and advocates of sanctions will say that it, we now have a, a tougher set of sanctions right now, but it takes a certain amount of time, three years, four years, and that may be the case. The question is, do we have the time to wait for the sanctions to kick in? I would agree. We don't have time. It takes a couple years before sanctions really, truly bite. Of course, a lot of that is enforcement of sanctions, and it'll take some time to make sure that all the countries are enforcing them. I do think, and I can tell you I was there, I was in North Korea earlier this year, and the people that I worked with were very concerned about a fuel embargo from China. And so that is one area, and I can guarantee you that the US mission to the United Nations is working on trying to convince their partners on the UN Security Council to agree to that. That will affect the, the daily lives. Sanctions only take as long as we are willing to implement them. Uh, I think the Trump administration has made uh, significant strides over the last 10 months. Perhaps uh, we'll see what happens moving forward. All right, we're going to take a short break now, and when we come back, we're going to talk about whether this whole situation actually has us closer to nuclear war. And we're also going to hear from some people who've been through it. Stay with us. That's Todd Zwillett. He's host of The Takeaway, leading our town hall discussion. This event was recorded December 1st at the United States Institute of Peace, but the online conversation continues. If you'd like to weigh in, find us on Facebook or our website at PRI.org. You're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. On today's program, we're featuring our D.C. town hall discussion, Brinkmanship, U.S.-North Korea Relations. Our panelists at the United States Institute of Peace include Frank Ahm of the Institute, Jean Lee of the Wilson Center, author and former member of European Parliament, Glenn Ford, and Anthony Ruggiero of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Before we head back to our conversation, a little bit of historical context. There's a section in this conversation where the panel discusses the six-party talks. That refers to a series of negotiations between the United States, China, Japan, Russia, South Korea, and North Korea. The talks began in 2003, when North Korea withdrew from the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. 
The talks aimed to stop North Korea's nuclear program, and they ended in 2009 after North Korea left the discussion. Let's go back now to our host, Todd Zwillick, host of The Takeaway. Welcome back. It's good to have you all with us. It's been 72 years since the world has seen the destruction caused by nuclear weapons. Most people have no real sense of what a nuclear bomb means, but Turumi Tanaka does have a sense. He was 13 years old and living in Nagasaki when the United States dropped the atomic bomb on his city. He lived about two miles from ground zero and somehow survived, even though the bomb devastated his neighborhood. Two days later, he and his mother visited the epicenter searching for their family members who live nearby. Here's how he described the scene. This clip is in Japanese, so I'm going to translate this one as well. He says houses were gone. Only the steel bars of concrete buildings stood bare and hollow. Everything else was a burnt field. On the way to my aunt's house, we saw blackened bodies all over the place. They probably burned underneath houses that burned down. People who died from severe injuries and burns, they were left on the ground without being collected. Those who were gravely injured and alive were left to writhe in pain without rescue. Today, Mr. Tanaka is a nuclear engineer himself, and he's an activist against nuclear weapons. And as he told us, he feels things are going in the wrong direction. Listen. Well, he says further there, it's especially disconcerting that the current Japanese government is actively feeding the military threat. The United States and Japan claim that North Korea is provoking, but the United States has come all the way over to do military exercise in close proximity to North Korea. So it appears to me, rather, that it's the United States that is provoking more. I want the United States to stop provoking. Instead, work to create the conditions to make dialogue possible. Frank, is the experience in Japan with American nuclear weapons as part of their culture now, obviously, does that experience and the nightmare of it feed into the modern Japanese approach to North Korea and the potential threat that they represent? Well, I think the threat has always been there. So North Korea has had nuclear weapons for at least 10 years, since 2006. So the nuclear shadow has been there over South Korea, it's been there over Japan. And now with the long-range tests, it's, it's growing appreciably uh, in the United States. But I would add that it's one thing to have the capability. It doesn't mean they're going to use it. You know, North Korea is not suicidal. They know that if they were to ever attack the United States or its allies, um, that we would respond with overwhelming force, and that means the destruction of the country. Really, the concern is that sometimes we tend to nitpick North Korea's tests. We'll say, oh, they didn't achieve this. They didn't demonstrate a reentry vehicle. And so what North Korea may do is that they want to prove beyond any doubt that they have this capability. So the concern is that they would demonstrate a missile test with a live warhead that does an atmospheric detonation over international waters, and that would be a game changer for us. Uh, another concern for us is that North Korea may now mistakenly believe that they have a nuclear weapon capability so they can keep the U.S. aside and they can run amok uh, and coerce South Korea and do a lot of provocations for their purposes. Frank, you're the one around this table who's worked at the Pentagon. I think that you probably have some thoughts on viable military options, if any really exist. Is there anything the United States can do, failing diplomacy here, to really brush back the North Korean nuclear and missile program? There's certainly military options. I wouldn't call them viable military options because uh, they all entail significant loss of life. So there's a recent Congressional Research Service study that came out that said, even in a conventional conflict, within the first few days, you would have 30,000 to 300,000 deaths. 
And then obviously those numbers go up exponentially when you have nuclear weapons involved. That being said, uh, there's other things you can do militarily that may not be escalatory enough that would put us in a conflict. It's hard to think a lot of what those are because I think if you have a kinetic action that strikes even, say, one missile facility, you know that North Korea will spawn because based on history, they don't wilt, they certainly persevere, they almost always fight back and retaliate. It sounds strange, and it sounded strange to me the first time I read about this, that there is a language of military, you call it kinetic action, I like that phrase they use over at the Pentagon. Uh, you have the option of a devastating strike that hits Pyongyang, or you can send two cruise missiles to one site. And those two things say different things to the victim, right? It just a pinprick strike says, we're not gonna wipe you out, we're just sending a message. So interpret that as message sent. Does, does that type of language work? The North Koreans have to interpret what's happening. And there is a danger that they misinterpret what's actually happening, because they're acutely aware from uh, studying the Iraq war and, and the rest that they literally have minutes to make a decision. So let's hope that they appreciate the distinction between two missiles landing somewhere and a fully-fledged assault. That's the first problem you actually face. And secondly, yeah, there are talks about pinprick strikes. Uh, there's talk about uh, if you want uh, shooting down a missile in flight, you might get away with that because Kim Jong-un can actually say that's a missile failure. He's not going to survive very long with his own administration. Yeah, this is not a man on his own. Uh, his military agree with what he's doing as well. So, I mean, he's not going to survive if he doesn't fight back. Gene, let's get back to kinetics for a second, because the United States has thousands of troops in South Korea huddled on a couple of bases, as I understand it, within range of North Korean artillery. So, so we have to think two or three times about the ramifications of even a pinprick strike. The United States has 20... 8,000 troops in South Korea, and in the region, 80,000 troops, and we have 200,000 Americans in that part of the world. So there are huge risks to any kind of action that could spark or trigger uh, military conflict, not just to the Korean people or the Japanese, but to Americans as well. I think when I hear the words military options, we do hear the president threatening in very vague terms that he's going to do something, or he's going to handle it. But to me, military options usually means we're going to, the, the Americans are going to remind North Korea that they have some powerful tools in the region, a powerful force in the region, nuclear-operated weaponry that they could unleash if they wanted to. And also remember that they carry out joint military drills twice a year with South Korea. The North Koreans see this as provocative and they consider it a rehearsal for an invasion. I think this is something that's really dangerous right now because we have just to remind you that there's a Winter Olympics coming up in South Korea in February. So this is something certainly on the mind of the South Koreans. The Americans and the South Koreans have a joint military exercise that's going to overlap with part of the Olympics and the Paralympics. And so this is a huge concern as well, because that's always uh, the start of this cycle of tension on the Korean Peninsula. Well, we started with Japan, and let's go to South Korea now, because we have another contributor that I want to help drive our discussion here. This is Yoon Jae Kim from the Yonsei University. Well, I guess the first thing that I would like to know is, why is the US so afraid of North Korea? Like North Korea has a very tiny army. Even if it gets ICBMs, America still has a qualitative and quantitative military edge, both in conventional and nuclear capabilities. And so the North Koreans know that if this escalates to an actual conflict with America, I mean, they will, they will just definitively lose. So why is the U.S. making such a big deal of North Korea? 
Jean Lee, we've had a lot of analysts explaining that South Koreans tend to be much less excited about the North Korean threat than Americans are. Is that true? It is true to a certain degree. I mean, South Koreans have been living with this threat for decades now, and they have to go about their daily lives. I remember as a child when I was visiting South Korea, we used to have these regular civil air raid drills. I think they're at 2 p.m. and you have to pull your car over to the side of the road, take cover. Frankly, I think people don't even stop what they're doing right now. They're so oblivious to some of these threats um, from North Korea. That said, things are a little bit different right now. I think the uncertainty and the lack of clarity in terms of what President Trump might do has unnerved some South Koreans. And um, also what's interesting is there's a growing call in South Korea among some parts of the population for South Korea to arm itself. I think it's kind of reflected in what the student was saying. Some people are calling for their own, for, to have nuclear weapons reintroduced to the Korean Peninsula. So this is a really interesting development that I see happening in South Korea. Uh, Anthony Ruggiero, you have experience in the diplomatic world and we're talking about the potential for military confrontations and how these societies view the threat culturally. Uh, you've been around the negotiating table. You were at the six party talks, those are defunct, there may be talks in the future. How does the actual threat of violence, the actual threat of war, how does that inform how talks proceed? This is really the debate over whether we could have a policy of deterrence. You know, I think the student's question is a good one of, and I think Frank mentioned this as well, that, you know, of course, North Korea is not suicidal. I don't think any of us think that. I think that North Korea sees its ICBMs and nuclear weapons programs as a way to prevent the United States from coming to South Korea's aid and probably protecting Japan as well. And so the question here that people have been struggling with is, can you deter North Korea? A, a possible policy solution, can it just be, let's just not give them all this credit and attention for these provocations and let's just say, you know, you do whatever you want inside, but you can't attack the United States or South Korea, Japan. I, I would say, of course, we can deter North Korea from those uh, military strikes, but you can't really use that as a policy to deter North Korea from proliferation. For example, North Korea built a nuclear reactor in Syria that was destroyed by Israel in 2007. If our policy is similar to strategic patience and just saying, let's not worry about this. We can, of course, deter North Korea. Let's focus on something else, especially something else with China, right? Then are we prepared to have a North Korea nuclear weapons program and an ICBM program that it will sell to anyone who is willing to pay for that. And that's really the crux of the policy debate with North Korea. And that's where I think we get into the debate of sanctions versus diplomacy. So if you want to have negotiations, as they say, it takes two to tango. The North Koreans have shown no interest in denuclearization talks. Well, I think they, they haven't responded. That doesn't mean that they're not interested. I think they eventually do want to get to the negotiating table, but they, they're doing it on their own timeline. They want to get their nuclear weapons program to a point where they can sit at the table as peers, or that's what they're thinking. Right. I mean, I, I guess I would say that's the danger there. It should be unacceptable for everyone that we would suggest that we would accept North Korea as a nuclear power, as an end goal. That's not naive suggesting they don't have nuclear weapons now. Of course they have nuclear weapons now. If we accept North Korea as a nuclear weapons power, the Iranian regime will stand up and say, of course, let's renegotiate that nuclear deal. And you know what I want? I want the North Korea deal. I want the deal where I and Tehran can get a nuclear weapon. So we have to be careful about the precedents that we're willing to set here with regard to global nonproliferation.
Glenn, go right ahead. You're saying you shouldn't set a precedent with North Korea, but you've set a precedent with Israel, you've set a precedent with India, you've set a precedent with Pakistan, with A.Q. Khan hawking his uh, gas centrifuges around the world. Where were the sanctions against Pakistan? Where were the threats to Pakistan? Where were the negotiations? No, it was fine. North Korea, oh no, they're a big problem. So, I mean, from the North Korean perspective, the US is changing the rules of the game halfway through. There's one other way to look at sanctions, and that's to look at it as a possible tool for diplomacy, in the sense that if North Korea is continuing to build up its program, you also want to have, if you're on the other side of the eventual negotiating table, you want to have something that you can negotiate away. So that's just another way to look at right. it. Yeah, leverage. I mean, that's the thing. You know, if we walked into negotiations today, we don't have a lot of leverage. If we're not getting to denuclearization, sanctions is a way to prevent that proliferation as well. Let me go to one more video clip from an office worker in Shanghai, China, who asked not to be identified. Wondering if U.S. would ever consult South Korea or solicit help from South Korea or China, and what if they don't help, what would the U.S. proceed? Jean, she wants to know if the U.S. would engage help with South Korea or with China. What do you think about that? You know, one of the major concerns in Seoul right now is something they call Korea passing. It's a little bit of a Konglishy phrase, but it's the concern or fear that they're being bypassed and that the U.S. and North Korea are in the middle of some sort of move toward bilateral discussions that won't involve South Korea. South Korea wants to be part of this discussion. They are really the ones whose lives are at stake here. So they're desperately trying to make sure that they are at that table and at those discussions. We've got kind of an ideological difference between the current president of South Korea and uh, the president of the United States. The president of South Korea, his parents were born in North Korea, so they were refugees from North Korea. Um, he has a much more of a holistic, I think, sense of the Korean Peninsula. He's concerned about the future of the North Korean people as well. So he doesn't want the obliteration of either South Korea or North Korea. Of course, right now he is very angry about the provocations, especially with the Olympics coming up. So he is trying to be tough, but he does eventually want engagement. The North Koreans realize that to resolve their dilemma, they have to talk to the United States. Nobody else really matters in the end. That's the solution. Oh, there's a bit of peripheral work with the South, with the people who are going to be paying the bills, because Donald Trump was not going to ask Congress to pay any bills for North Korea, and even if he did, he wouldn't get it. So it's going to be the South Koreans doing the heavy lifting with maybe some assistance from China, European Union, and possibly, in a, it depends how long it takes, Japan. We've talked a lot about sticks. We've talked a lot about sanctions. We've talked a lot about ratcheting down. Let's give a moment of lip service to carrots, shall we? Um, Anthony, you're the, you're the sanctions man. Talk about carrots for a moment. What positive motivation do we have to offer the North right now, and should we? I'm going to avoid listing out carrots, because I would say my criticism of our negotiation strategy is that we would negotiate for both sides. In other words, we determine what we want from North Korea, denuclearization, and how we get to that point. And then we determine, you know, what we're going to tell North Korea we're willing to give them in order to achieve that goal. You know, it's North Korea that should tell us what they need from us in a negotiated settlement. We shouldn't be coming to the table with a list of here are the number of sanctions we can release. Here's the amount of heavy fuel oil we could give you. These are just past incentives that we've given them. And I, and I would just say, my final point will be, that is the one area that we're not talking a lot about. What would be the negotiation strategy 
in a renewed six-party talks. Because remember, 2005 six-party talks joint statement says no nuclear program, no nuclear weapons for North Korea. That's certainly not what the Iran deal negotiated, right? So we'd have to discuss that. And then we have to think about how do we flip it on its head and get North Korea to commit to denuclearization up front. The flaw in the negotiations in the 2000s and in 19, the 1990s was that we accepted this long, drawn-out negotiations that in the end did not lead us to denuclearization. Jean Carrot. One of the interesting things when Donald Trump was campaigning was that he said, I would sit down with Kim Jong-un and have a hamburger with him. And I have to say it was kind of intriguing. There are reasons why you don't do that, because it really legitimizes the person you're sitting down with, and that's certainly a concern. But I can tell you that that's exactly what Kim Jong-un wants. So it's an, it was an intriguing proposal to put out there. And I'm very interested to know if that could ever happen. A little bit of burger diplomacy, which means legitimacy, Frank. Is that a good carrot? That is a good carrot. And I think, so we know exactly what North Korea wants, because they've stated it repeatedly. Um, and I believe at this point, the price has probably gone up. So we know that they want to keep their nuclear weapons. They want relief from sanctions. They want an end to US hostile policy, which means uh, end to military exercises, removal of US forces from the Korean Peninsula. They want economic concessions. So we know what they want. It's just a matter of what are we willing to concede um, that allows them to get to the table or eventually get the goals that we want. Glenn, one carrot. Peace treaty. That's a big carrot. That's a Bugs Bunny size carrot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you only need one. You're going to get one. It's a big one. Yeah. And a peace treaty, just as, as simple as that, come to the table yeah, to but it's negotiate it. You'd be lucky to get one vote in Congress for a peace treaty sure. in North Korea. This is part of the problem. I mean, some of the things they want are impossible to deliver. Let's be realistic. And you have to see it the other way around. Some things the US wants and we want, the European Union would, would really like North Korea to give it a nuclear weapon. We can't get, because you can't deliver some of the things they want. So let's be realistic about, we're going to meet in the middle somewhere. And it seems to me that the US interest is really about stopping them definitively having the ability to hit the mainland USA. Forget about the nuclear weapons, that's gone. That ship sailed in 2010, I think, which was the last time they mentioned the possibility of getting rid of their nuclear weapons. We're going to take another short break, and that will give all of you a chance to get your questions ready. The mic will start traveling around the room because you have an opportunity to question these experts yourselves. So stay with us. That's Todd Zwillick, host of The Takeaway, leading our town hall discussion. This event was recorded earlier at the United States Institute of Peace, but the online conversation continues. If you'd like to weigh in, tweet us at America underscore abroad. You're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. On today's program, we're featuring our town hall discussion, Brinkmanship, U.S.-North Korea Relations. Our panelists are Frank Ahm of United States Institute of Peace, Jean Lee of the Wilson Center, author and former member of European Parliament, Glenn Ford, and Anthony Ruggiero of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. The show was recorded at the United States Institute of Peace. Let's turn back now to our town hall host, Todd Zwillick from The Takeaway. Welcome back, everyone, to our program, Brinksmanship, U.S.-North Korea Relations here at the United States Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C. Well, now it's time for you to have your say. So there's going to be a mic coming around the room. Identify yourself and who you'd like your question to go for. Let's start with the woman with her hand up right up there. Hello, my name is Bailey O'Donnell. I am a freshman over at American University studying international affairs. 
Is making a deal with uh, North Korea possible, or do you think you'd be arguing with a child that wants a cookie, but you can't give them the cookie, but they really want the cookie? And if uh, military intervention is preventable or necessary? Frank. I think a deal is possible, but it's, I mean, at the moment, it's looking very unlikely because I feel what the U.S. wants and what North Korea wants is uh, so fundamentally irreconcilable. Or North Korea is saying that we absolutely want to keep our nuclear weapons, and the U.S. is saying is North Korea absolutely cannot keep its nuclear weapons. So if you take this all-or-nothing maximalist approach, then there really isn't space for diplomacy. I think there needs to be a little give, or there needs to be a shift away from that singular focus on denuclearization and a look at more practical, achievable, intermediate steps that give us the political space to later on tackle some of the harder issues. I do believe that there is a negotiated settlement where North Korea denuclearizes. And how do you achieve that is the type of sanctions that I was describing earlier. I know that everybody is a pessimist when it comes to sanctions, uh, but there will come a time when Chinese banks are punished for what they did for North Korea. And then you will have Chinese banks on the front lines identifying North Korean money that is sitting in China that is used for the elites, for the military, and for the weapons programs. And what Kim Jong-un is gonna have to decide is which of those are most important. And that's gonna be the issue for him. Let's go, I don't wanna give you too far to walk. Can we go down to the front to this gentleman here? Hello, fascinating discussion. Uh, I'm Michael Marshall from the Global Peace Foundation. I'd like to hear from uh, Ms. Lee and Mr. Ford who spent extensive time in North Korea on their take on changes within North Korean society, particularly as it affects the elites. The people in Pyongyang, how important are they? And what's gonna happen if their standard of living instead of steadily climbing starts to decline? And then also the nexus between marketization and elite corruption. Thank you. Jean, you go first. The Elites in Pyongyang, or the population of Pyongyang, is extremely important to the regime or to the leadership. You know, some people describe North Korea as having a court economy. I like to think of it a little bit like uh, a monarchy, in a sense. You have to keep a certain number of people happy in order to win their loyalty. So that's extremely important. Good. Pyongyang was always privileged, but there's been an enormous further privileging of Pyongyang. I mean, you've now got... Uh, restaurants, shops, uh, you've got a dolphinarium, outdoor water parks, uh, outdoor ice skating rinks in summer, package holidays down to Mount Kumgang. There's a, that enormous privileging. And you, know, you have borders around Pyongyang. Anybody can leave, but coming back in, you need permission. So this is a closed city, and it's very important for, for Kim Jong-un to actually deliver to those people. He believes he has to do two things. He needs nuclear weapons to stop regime change, a la Libya, Syria, Iraq, and he needs to grow the economy. Now, there's a degree of incompatibility there, and that's the trick he's actually got to pull off. Who's next? Let's go to this gentleman down in the third row, please. Thanks. Aaron Martin from the University of Melbourne. The 2013 International Crisis Group report on North Korea suggested a positive way forward to focus on sporting exchanges, private sector, so around adventure travel, um, to open up new links on a people-to-people -people basis. So I wonder if anyone's got some good examples of where they've been able to continue despite the travel ban situation. 
You mentioned sports. Sports diplomacy still has some potential. It's one of the only arenas. It's one of the only ways that North Koreans can get overseas right now. We have an opportunity with the upcoming Olympics. We don't know if the North Koreans are going to send a delegation. They have uh, pair skaters who qualified, uh, but sports is always one area. The North Koreans know this as well, and they try to take advantage of that, so there's some potential there. But a lot of other avenues for people-to-people -people engagement have been cut off. No other areas for the soft power of vacation planning to the Grand Canyon or the suburbs of Pyongyang? The more you engage the North Koreans, the better, if you want to change the regime. I mean, have engagement. Disengagement is entirely the wrong approach. The United Kingdom has an embassy in Pyongyang. I think it would be completely crazy for us to close the embassy in Pyongyang and to throw out the North Koreans from Britain. We want to get a dialogue. How the hell do you talk to them if you've thrown them out? So you know, but, the more engagement, the better. But I, Every I just, time they set off an ICBM, I'd engage more. I just want to point out the differences in evaluations. After 10 months, people want to declare sanctions don't work. But after decades of engagement with North Korea, that have not produced the type of regime that we want, the answer is more engagement. So I think we've got to be consistent in how we evaluate our approach to North Korea. We've had 64 years of sanctions. No, we actually yeah, have We've had 64 right. years so can, of sanctions. Maybe we could have that conversation in the Every room. time we have new, tougher sanctions, nobody says this lot aren't going to work because we're just playing. Uh, Every I'm set of sanctions send, is going to be the one that works. Happy to send you my work. I'm going to declare sanctions on this part of the debate just so that we can make sure <laughs> that the audience has more questions. Ma'am, they're in the, in the black sweater. Hi, my name is Maria Jessup. I'm with Karina Center for Peacebuilding. Uh, thank you for this discussion. My question is about talks and what is the right way to go about encouraging those talks and who are the right players to, uh, let's say, mediate those talks. It, it seems the situation is too polarized between the U.S. and North Korea for there to be really direct talks without some sort of facilitation. I want to reinforce a point that Anthony made, but also provide some background. So in 2015, early 2015, North Korea actually originated their proposal for a, a dual freeze, which now China has sort of taken up the mantle on. And then later in the fall of 2015, they also proposed peace party talks. So they have been proposing talks in recent years. But I think Anthony is right that recently, uh, at least since September or so, they've been uh, silent. And so if we don't have that partner on the other end, it's hard to see that happen. So things may change, things are fluid, um, but I think um, you need to have a willing partner. So the place where I want to wrap up before you leave us today is with what I think is the bottom line of this discussion. How urgent is this problem? Are we actually closer to war than we were a year ago? Glenn, go ahead. Absolutely. I mean, quite how close we are, I don't know, but we're in a worrying position. And it seems to me that the only way you get out of that, there are three roads to war at various speeds. One is to take military action. One is covert action, which is we haven't talked about, uh, the US policy of change regime. The third one is sanctions, because if, if they really start hurting, do we think Kim Jong-un is going to come to the negotiating table or engage in military adventurism? And the fourth one, the only peaceful solution is through negotiations. And the sooner we get there, the better. Gene Lee, saber-rattling, tweeting, and increasingly sophisticated tests, are we actually closer to confrontation than we were? I am not so concerned about the prospect of nuclear war, but I am, as somebody who lives on the Korean Peninsula, 
concerned about every test and the dangers posed not only in terms of safety. I mean, there's a, an entire mountain in North Korea that collapsed after the last underground nuclear test. Think about all the radiation that was transmitted into the air. If we have another nuclear test, it's possible it might be above ground, as Frank mentioned, hugely dangerous. And then also, I want to just mention the cost to the North Korean people. This is an, a, an expensive program, and they are diverting resources away from basic infrastructure. Just want to tell you, so normally in the past, this was the time of year when I was in North Korea freezing. They don't have heat. They have limited electricity, clean water, running water, toilet. I mean, it's a difficult place to live, and by allowing this program to continue, we're taking food out of the mouths of average North Koreans. So I do worry about, I just want to re remind you that the people of the Korean Peninsula are also paying the price. Anthony Ruggiero, your final thoughts if we're actually closer to war than we were. I don't think we're closer to a military conflict or war. I, I am concerned that North Korea will engage in a military action like they did seven years ago uh, to sink a South Korean uh, naval vessel and kill over 40 South Korean sailors. I'm concerned that the North Koreans will interpret really our inaction in 2010 as a, you know, an ability to do something like that. I think that's, that's really the danger I see, that something happens and that it escalates quickly. So the only solution, the only peaceful solution right now, continue with sanctions to create the leverage for denuclearization talks. Frank? I think uh, at the current trajectory, the situation is very urgent. Either Trump is serious about what he's saying, so when he says fire and fury, when he says the calm before the storm, when he says the window is closing, he either means it, in which case the situation is urgent, or he's bluffing, in which case we kind of go to a status quo where we continue to contain North Korea, we continue to turn North Korea, but at the same time we open ourselves up to uh, a situation that Anthony mentioned, which is where we sort of stumble into a conflict because of a conventional provocation. I don't want to leave it on a pessimistic note. I think, again, the situation is fluid. Things can change. I believe in sanctions. I believe in the saying that sanctions don't work until they work. I think they're necessary, but also they're not sufficient. I think the same applies for diplomacy. Diplomacy doesn't work until it works. There's always a potential, but the situation has to change from both the North Korean side and the United States side. I want to thank everyone for joining us for this event and this discussion on diplomacy and North Korea. It's been a pleasure for me. Let me thank Frank Ahm, our host from the U.S. Institute of Peace. Also, Glenn Ford, author and European parliamentarian. Gene Lee of the Wilson Center and Anthony Ruggiero of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Thanks to each of you. And that was host Todd Zwillick wrapping up our town hall discussion, which was recorded on December 1st. But the conversation you just heard continues online at PRI.org. This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Shoshi Shmulevitz. Audio engineering support was provided by Flan Williams, Mario Saavedra at KCRW, and Bill Vaughn at USIP. Our theme music was composed by Nolan Schneider. Special thanks to USIP's Rachel Vandenbrink for on-site coordination. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on Facebook, or by visiting our website at pri.org, 
where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Edelyn Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI Public Radio International.